Elazar R. Edelman, MD, PhD, is the Edward J. Poitras Professor in Medical Engineering and Science at MIT, Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and Senior Attending Physician in the Coronary Care Unit at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Dr. Edelman directs MIT's Institute for Medical Engineering and Science and Clinical Research Center, as well as the Harvard-MIT Biomedical Engineering Center, all dedicated to applying the rigors of the physical sciences to elucidate fundamental biologic processes and mechanisms of disease. This episode is hosted by Dr. Julie Gerberding, CEO of the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health, and is part of the Healthcare Innovations Series sponsored by Edwards Life Sciences. Now, let's join the conversation as Dr. Edelman shares some of his insight into how the medical community can continue to make progress. Welcome to the Gary Bisbee Show. It is my poignant honor to be your host today, and I have a very exciting guest. Dr. Elzar Edelman is the Edward J. Poitras Professor in Medical Engineering and Science at MIT, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and an attending physician in the coronary care unit at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He and his laboratory have done amazing work in vascular biology and in other dimensions in the development and assessment of biotechnology in, in this area. He directs the MIT Institute for Medical Engineering and Science, as well as the Clinical Research Center and the Harvard-MIT Biomedical Engineering Center. All of these activities are oriented around the development of the basic science and the translation of that science into interventions that really help patients. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about Elzar and his career is that he really is, in a sense, the epitome of convergence, that connection of different disciplines and the friction that uh, occurs when you bring different disciplines together to focus on a problem, the creativity and the innovation. So I want to start by, first of all, thanking you for joining us, but also by asking you, what is it about the culture in these institutions when you're, where you're working that allows you to have this kind of convergent innovation really thrive so incredibly well? So thank you for a wonderful introduction. And thank you, parenthetically, for all you do, because it, it is a matter of culture. Those of us who have been blessed to practice medicine in the last 40, 50 years have seen this remarkable transformation of medicine as a dedicated art form into medicine as an impact on global health through the melding of science and engineering with that art form. And it has occurred because People like you, Dr. Gerberding, have helped us build conceptual, supportive communities so that people like both of us could bring all of our talents together. I'm often asked if I'm a 20, 80, 50-50, 80-20, and anyone who knows those numbers knows that what it means is, do I spend 20% of my time thinking about clinical medicine and 80% research, or is it flipped or is it 50-50? Which means that if you believe that I exist in two disparate domains, two different cultures, 
the very essence of your question is that I'm 100% always a clinician scientist, always a clinician engineer, and I belong in one vibrant conceptual community that holds that we have to embrace all of these disciplines to have impact. When I look at your career, your early science and the mathematics of drug dilution from bare metal stents and so on and so forth through your whole progression into some of the most interesting and innovative interventions and devices. I think you have 80 patents, as a matter of fact. Um, people might be a little surprised to know that in your earliest iteration of an innovator, you were running an AIDS clinic <laughs> while you were a resident in the very beginning of the HIV epidemic. And I was in your cohort. So you and I both started in an era when we were facing our first pandemic. So fast forward to 2020 and your time in the coronary care unit at the Brigham. First of all, I should ask you, were you surprised to find yourself in a situation where you were once again on the front line of a really frightening pandemic? But also, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about what that was like for you, and then maybe we can touch on some of the things that you and your team did to adopt your sort of core capacities in biomedical engineering of vascular disease to the COVID front lines and some of the innovations that came of that. So tell us a little bit about that experience that you have had a unique vantage point to appreciate. Thank you for your question. The COVID epidemic does have profound resonances with what you and I experienced with AIDS, what you taught us all through your practice and through the CDC. And what we understand are very powerful messages. The first message is that these things sneak up on us and the realization is late in dawning. But once we understand it, we come to realize two very important things. First, that whatever happens to us is happening around the world. Medicine is not a first world problem. It's not a third world problem. It's not a problem in the Americas or in Asia. It's a global problem. And whatever happens with harmonics over time and space. Now, that's an engineer speaking, but what that means is the flu epidemic started in the United States and it resonated throughout the world and then it had harmonic appearances every few years. The same thing was true for everything. Polio, for, for, for AIDS, for COVID. And the response requires each time the same marshalling of groups, disciplines, and cultural alignment. First, the appreciation that we're dealing with something powerful that affects everyone. Second, that we can learn from everybody. And third, that it is precisely technology that, with its double-edged sword, can solve at the same time as create problems. So what do I mean by that? We made the first diagnosis of AIDS, and therefore, as a very young clinician, I was assigned all the AIDS patients. And suddenly, I was running an AIDS clinic as someone who didn't have that expertise. 
And so I needed to rely on community to help me. Infectious disease doctors, indeed the Centers for Disease Control, publishing a pamphlet weekly helped us all. And then it was the sharing of information that led us to understand how to deal with things. It was this incredible push of an entire community to isolate the primary organism and then to bring together one, two, multiple chemotherapeutic approaches. Same thing was true of COVID. We saw COVID in November of 2019 without understanding that it was COVID. But I was working with colleagues in Milan on a science program when COVID erupted there. And then we had continuous dialogue about best practices. Where technology has helped us in a way unlike never before is that at the height of COVID, we could take schools of technology like MIT and redirect all of its resources to look at everything from the manufacturing and provision of protective equipment, personalized protective equipment, to the very essence of what is the nature of these diseases as they affect certain organs. In a very Dickens-like way, it was the best of times and the worst of times. And the final lesson, and then I'd love to engage you in this, because you know far more about this than I do, is that we not to pretend that this is once in a lifetime or once in a century event. These are the larger manifestations of medicine in its totality. This is no different, in a sense, than the plague of cardiovascular and atherosclerotic disease, or the transition of diabetes from an acute illness in children to a chronic, debilitating series of processes in adults. The ramping, the rampages and ravages of, of obesity and metabolic syndromes are very much akin to the infectious diseases that we cite as pandemics. And the same cultural realignment is what's required to solve those problems. Well, you're bringing a very broad lens on, I like your concept of harmonics, even though obviously I'm not an engineer, but I think that really resonates with me. And I also recall our conversation about what is happening in clinical cardiology today. I think you told me that when you are attending in the coronary care unit right now, it's actually unusual for someone to come in with a myocardial infarction and die. Largely, that's a consequence of the incredible progress we've made in diagnosing, treating invasively and non-invasively coronary artery disease. And yet the mortality in the coronary care unit is 20% during admission, 20% again before discharge, and then 20% in the next six months. So what you're really talking about is not coronary artery disease, but the ripple effect, the harmonics of the obesity, the diabetes, and the overall poor state of health that our communities really experience in an incredibly disequitable way, if I could use a non-English term. So when you're thinking about how technology plays into that space, what are your thoughts and how do you redirect your effort 
beyond the blood vessel to the broader concerns that are causing the patients to be in a coronary care unit. Such a wonderfully phrased question. And it requires a two-part answer. It requires a historical answer, which is philosophical, and then a very practical one. So historically, the appreciation that the cardiovascular system is a circulatory system comes about at the very beginning of the 17th century, but is directly influenced by science. William Harvey in 1603, 1604, explains that everything's a circuit. The consequence of our blood flowing in a circuit means that the norm is that an effect that one part of the circuit will be felt everywhere. Now, the fact is, the historical fact is, that Harvey actually seized on the work of another physician, Nicholas Copernicus, by directly taking his work on the solar system and applying it to the cardiovascular system. Indeed, in the 17th century, it was professors of anatomy who actually taught astronomy. The degree that they got, Dr. Medicine, Medicina in Arts, they got a, a degree in Arts and Technology is the degree we give at MIT today. So what it means is, it means first that if we really appreciate modern physiology, it's unusual for anyone to have a single organ disease. And as technology addresses or supports patients who are profoundly ill with one disease, they can make another emerge. So you're right. When you and I started in medicine, the cardiac intensive, the coronary intensive care unit was called the coronary intensive care unit because we treated people with myocardial infarctions with a heart attack, but we didn't really treat them. We watched them. As we began to treat them, we prevented them from dying. And the consequence is that many other organ systems erupted with other processes, either immediately in the near term or in the long term. And that's what modern medicine is. And so our coronary unit, care unit has become the cardiac intensive care unit and it's multi-organ failure. Now, what technology has done is not only prolong people's lives, save those who might have passed away, but it's also created inequities. It's allowed diseases to emerge, but it also means that while there are global diseases, there's not global access to technology. And so I treat patients who are in at least two forms of advanced support. I give patients technology with ventricular assist devices that we help write the algorithms for, devices like stents and new valves that we've helped invent. But that's not available to everybody. And that's the challenge. The challenge is that everybody has a circulatory system and everybody's organs are be at the consequence of everything within that circulatory system. But not everyone has the access to the same technological advances. This whole, it's almost a paradox, isn't it? We have sciences on our side. Science has never known more and had the capacity to do more than 
we're looking out on today and in, in the foreseeable future. And yet that very science creates some incredible societal challenges that focus in many areas, but one of them is that whole concept of translation. First, bench to bedside. So let's talk about that a little bit. And you've already brought up the equitable access and affordability of these scientific interventions, this technology. But there are other science and society issues that we have to contend with. The whole issue of transplantations and artificial organs, the safety of artificial intelligence and machine learning, the complexities and ethics of gene editing. Um, these are really vexing issues. And I know in your lab, you have a cadre of incredibly brilliant people who are working on various dimensions of these problems. But I'd like to know how you as the leader really instill in them not only their scientific competency and capacity development, but the ability to take on, think about, and really operate in this world this juxtaposition between science and the societal challenges that we are actually creating and need to have some accountability for solving. So as the leader, how do you bring these 300 people that you've trained through the years along that pathway so that they really are part of the solution to this conundrum? So I'll give you the answer that my PhD advisor would have given it's, I always made fun of him for it, but it's true. And it is that it's they who lead me. So the wisest and most inspired thing I do is invite them to become a part of our community and then allow them to reach beyond their potential. So when you, I, Bernard Cohn was this great historian of science. He wrote this book on revolutions in science. And if I can distill down this six, seven, eight hundred page book to just one thought, he said that science becomes revolutionary when it advances conceptual thought and creates conceptual revolutionaries. And that's what we do. We create an environment which has the flip side of any good organization. We create focus, but have a diverse set of perspective and skills. We have a shared and common vision, which is that everything we do is trying to answer the how and why questions, not just the what of medicine. And I try very hard to direct and keep people on a track but also to empower them to be autonomous. And then above all, constantly challenge people, but allow them to feel safe and secure in saying that they don't know, but they want to investigate. So it's, if you will, the whole rules of how you create any community that is simultaneously innovative, but also safe. It's, a, it's an interesting challenge. You, you, it's the wise crowd, but the wise crowd has to mobilize in the direction that actually accomplishes the overall mission and purpose of the organization. Um, but certainly you're situated in a, a mecca where that kind of multidisciplinary approach with really bright people who are not just on a mission, but 
are motivated by their internal sense of purpose. And yeah, I think there are many places I would like to think around the country and the world where such a culture exists, but arguably MIT, Harvard, has got to be one of the incubators of this kind of community of collaboration. What is it about the environment that you operate in Boston that makes this so much more common, perhaps, than it is in many other settings? I would answer that there are two things. Inspired mentorship and a common embracing of the moral obligation of a clinician scientist. So what I mean by that, and I'll start with the second, is that clinician scientists have a unique moral obligation that you alluded to earlier. They are bound not just by the ethics of science, but by the obligation to use their science to improve the human condition. That is not an obligation of virtually anybody else alone. The clinician scientist must do that. You cannot take time away from the learning and practice of medicine to engage in science unless that science makes you a better clinician and improves the qualities of people who rely on you when they are vulnerable. And then second, there has to be not only a community of like-minded people who embrace that message, but a community that through its own entire infrastructure wants to help other people do that. And that's what inspired mentorship is. It's not the reliance on a single individual to provide for everyone. It means that all of us embrace the moral obligation of translating science into medical impact, into translating engineering into improving the quality of people's lives, but we equally embrace the responsibility to enable others who are before us, others who will come after us, others who we will never meet, but through our writing and our teaching can achieve the same thing. That is a really beautiful re-articulation of the Hippocratic Oath, in a sense, that it's not just about the practice of our craft, but it's about our our moral and humanitarian obligation to do something for people on behalf of people in the pursuit of that craft. And is that something we talk enough about in medicine, I think? So it's really lovely to hear you articulate it in such a profound way. Thank that, you. That, that does lead me to touch on another framework that you and I discussed earlier, and that really is the framework of the translation of science, not just from the bed to the bench to the bedside, but translation of science from scientists to citizens, to society. We're living in a world right now where trust in science arguably is as low as I think anyone have anyone could ever imagine it would be in this day and age. Um, trust in our institutions is declining. Trust in doctors has declined in many settings. Um, and yet we have the knowledge and we have a moral obligation to present our knowledge and perspectives in ways that help people 
understand and have the information they need in the way they need it to make better decisions, but also the responsibility to make sure that goes beyond individual patients and has a broader influence in our communities and in our decision makers. And you talked a little bit about some of the things that you have personally done to try to be an ambassador of science in that way, but also some of the things that you encourage your students and trainees and postdocs to participate in as well. And I think that's so important. So I'd love to hear you dive into that a little bit. So certainly, and it's almost ironic for you asking me that question because people like you are heroes. You're the people who dedicate their lives to serving as the ambassadors and advocates for science and community, not science in community, not community and science, but science and community together. I think, as you said, part of our moral obligation, part of our responsibility is not simply to engage in ethical science, not simply to make sure that people can read and hear about what we do, and not even make sure that everyone has access to what's good and great to become better. But there's a fourth pillar to that, and that is we have an obligation to explain to everyone what we're doing and then to listen when they talk back to us to make sure that they understand and we understand and can learn from them. I think it is important for every single one of us to become those advocates. We need to go into elementary and middle and high schools. We need to go to the halls of Congress. We need to explain what we're doing. And then we need not to be afraid to be honest. Part of why people are suspicious is because a hundred truths are undermined by one falsehood. A hundred successes are undermined by one, one event where things did not go right when we promised that they would. So the most important thing is to be honest and forthright and then to engage the community as our partners. Physicians are sometimes afraid, and scientists especially, of not admitting that we don't know everything and that there is a risk to any path we take. And so we need to be those advocates and teach advocacy and recognize and reward advocacy so that it doesn't follow or fall rather on the select few who are most good at it, but it becomes a part of every scientist, clinician, engineers, scholars portfolio. It's, it's really an essential tool in our black bag, but it is not one that is emphasized in very many settings, especially when people get swept up into the pursuit of their their scientific endeavor or their bedside demands. And yet, I've always thought that the most effective way to be an ambassador for science or for helping people have an honest appraisal of where we are is to, no matter who I'm talking to, whether it's someone in my work setting or in the Congress or in the news media, to always, in my mind, feel like I'm speaking to a patient. Because when doctors speak to patients, we're rarely absolute. We often have to acknowledge that we have uncertainty about the best course or what's going to happen if we do X, Y, or Z. 
and that kind of intimate honesty is so important to the patient. And it is what engenders that trust that happens in the doctor-patient relationship. We just need to figure out how to instill that in the broader universe in which we operate in the rest of our world. And if we could do that better, I think more people would, would re, we would regain trust and where we've lost it and strengthen it where we still have it. Um, but certainly you are an exemplar of that capacity to be able to bring science into an environment where citizens can grapple with it and Congress. And I know you've worked with the FDA and other organizations as well, but thank you for that because you have your own persona and your own track record and credibility to bring to that effort, but you also have the brand of Harvard and MIT. And that also matters because those are very credible resources and people have high expectations and it helps us all when that perspective can be brought forward despite your demanding professional work. So I just want to end on a fun note because I hope everyone will Google you and read your resume and just see the amazing things you've done. But you also have a family, three sons, I believe, and a very interesting life outside of work. And it's always important to acknowledge that leaders are better when they have balance in their lives. And so maybe you could just say a little bit about that in your own life, but also how you try to encourage that in your students and trainees that you're leaving. That's an interesting question. And it's doubly interesting because this morning I was driving my son to the train and as always he was late. And he said to me, I know I'm late. I know we may miss the train, but I feel bad because I know you have a call in five minutes and you're gonna have to take it from the car. And then he did what every child does to a parent. He asks the stunning question. And he asked me, he said, Dad, have having us as children negatively impacted your career? <laughs> and I said to him, wonderful question, which is always a stalling. And I said, Austin, no. But what it really did do is changed what I wanted out of life. It changed what I consider to be important in life, and it changed what I wanted my career to be. And I can't imagine life or my career without family. And I try very hard to convey that to all of our postdocs and students, all of our fellows. It I've never met and I deal with a lot of end-of-life issues, a person who at the end of their life said, you know what, I spend way too much time with my family. I think that the family and community are one, right? It doesn't mean that everyone has to have a child, but everyone has to view that they have to be part of a world around them, and that fuses with their personal sense and what they call their career. My, my PhD is in a branch of physics called continuum dynamics. It sees the world as a continuum. There are no discontinuities. And that's how I view community, family, medicine, science, engineering. It's all a fusion of a universe. And I, you cannot be a scientist without living in the world, and you cannot be a clinician without that. I know, because you and I have talked, 
that those of us that were both blessed and burdened with the very early part of AIDS could never come away without this angst for those who were entrusted themselves to us when we had no idea what was going on. And then this incredible empathy, not sympathy, feeling the pain and suffering and realizing that people had to hide who they were and that the disease was both destroying that part of their persona as well as their physical essence. So the short answer to your question is there cannot be a and to Austin's question, there is no career without family. There is no science without community. There cannot be engineering without a global friendship and siblinghood. That is a beautiful way to end a conversation. <laughs> I am inspired and I'm sure our viewers will be similarly inspired. So just thank you for this, but also thank you so much for what you do for your leadership and for bringing that diaspora of incredibly talented people through your lab and through your coronary care unit. I am grateful for your time. And with that, we will end our program today and thank our viewers and hope that you will log on to see other episodes of The Gary Bisbee Show. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kerbing, for everything you've done. Thank you. You're very welcome. <laughs>